Okay, all right, we're going to go ahead and get started, and we are in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and we'll pick up in verse 15. Uh, actually, let's start reading in verse 13 to 29, but tonight we'll be dealing with 21 to 29. And we will finish this chapter tonight, so which will also conclude the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 7, let's pick up in verse 13. There it says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time to meet together tonight. And Lord, we thank you for uh, such a good turnout for our Wednesday night Bible study. And Lord, we do pray that you would bless our time of fellowship and that, Lord, you would bless our study of your word. Lord, give us a greater faith. Lord, may we build our house upon the rock of your word. Lord, may we have true faith. Lord, not a pretend faith of those who call you Lord, Lord, but do not do what you say, but may we have true faith, Lord, faith that is manifested uh, in that we hear your words and we act upon them. So, Lord, we pray that we would receive your word tonight, Lord, with all fear and humility, and that, Lord, you would use it uh, to build us up in our faith, Lord, for the salvation of our souls. And so, Lord, we pray for you to be with us, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, well, we are in this concluding uh, section on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has been teaching about the narrow and the wide gate, right? The narrow and wide gate in that there are few people who will enter into the kingdom of God while there are many people who will be on the pathway that leads to destruction. Then the, the uh, overflow from this teaching of the wide and narrow gate is that not everyone who claims to be a Christian is going to be a true believer. He first dealt with that in terms of false prophets, that there are going to be many false prophets that go out into the world and that we have to be on guard against them so that we do not come under their spell. Their spell. They are uh, outwardly the appearance of a lamb or of a sheep, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And Jesus tells us that we will know them, we will be able to discern them by their fruit. So we have to have discernment and have to have the ability to be able to determine if someone is a good tree or if someone is a bad tree. And if they are a bad tree, then we need to reject them and have nothing to do with them. And so this was applied to the false prophets, to the false prophets and the true prophets or false teachers and true teachers, false pastors, true pastors. We must be able to discern between who is true and who is false. Then in verse 21, he's going to apply this truth more broadly to many, many people, right? And here he's emphasizing the wide way that leads to destruction. And as we had mentioned when we talked to that passage, that the wide way that leads to destruction isn't just true of Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and atheists and pagan religions, those that are outside of Christianity, but even within the veil of Christianity, not everyone who calls Jesus Lord is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is a very important teaching for us because do we call Jesus our Lord? 
Well, we, we claim that, we profess that, but he's saying here that that's not enough. Simply saying the right things, simply having this good title in addressing Jesus as Lord, Lord, is not enough to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So we have to be able to examine ourselves and examine others as well to make sure that we are in the faith and that we are not deluded, self-deluded, under a deception and delusion that we are children of God or that we are servants of Christ when he's not really our Lord. And the evidence, the proof that he is our Lord is if we do what he says, right? Doesn't that make sense? If he is our Lord, then shouldn't we obey him? Shouldn't we follow him? Shouldn't we do his word and, and what he tells us to do? And that's the evidence that he truly is our Lord. It's very easy to call Jesus your Lord, but it's entirely different to obey him and for that profession to be manifested in our life. Now, he's not saying it's wrong to call Jesus Lord. We should call him Lord. Actually, in Romans chapter 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So confessing that Jesus is Lord is necessary for salvation, but mere confession is not enough. There must be true confession, and true confession will manifest itself with obedience, right? With an obedient heart. So let's pick up in verse 21. There he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Not everyone, he says, who calls me, who addresses me as Lord, Lord. So again, this is a good address. This is a good title. It is good to call Jesus Lord, Lord. And they're emphatic about it. They're not just calling him Lord once. Lord, Lord, right? You are our Lord. You are our master. They are saying this. But here he's telling us that not everyone who makes this claim is doing so legitimately and truly. Not everyone who says Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. So how do we know the difference between a true professor and a false professor? Between one who is saying Lord, Lord and has it and means it in a sincere, true, honest way versus one who is saying Lord, Lord, but is doing it with insincerity, with deception, with lies, right? As a hypocrite, we'll notice what Jesus says. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So those who call Jesus Lord, Lord, and also do the will of the Father in heaven, they are the ones who will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Right. While those who call Jesus Lord, Lord, but do not do the will of the Father in heaven, then they will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what makes the difference between the true and the false professor is doing the will of my Father in heaven. And what is the will of God for us? that we obey him, that we keep his commandments, that we do his will, that we follow him, that we obey his word. This is the will of God for us. This is our salvation. This is our sanctification. We're going to be dealing with this over the next couple of months because on Sunday we're going to start uh, a series on Psalm 119. Psalm 119, which is teaching about obedience to the law of God, practical obedience to the commandments of God. This is the way that we must be. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Verse 46. Luke 6, 46 says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Here Jesus is rebuking these spurious, false, pretentious disciples. Right? They're calling him Lord. And we know that there are many people who temporarily or momentarily follow Jesus. And here Jesus is challenging them. He's saying to them, why are you calling me Lord, but you're not doing what I say? In what way am I your Lord if you do not obey me? Right. Right? In what way is a slave, an obedient, faithful slave, if he doesn't do the will of his master? If he doesn't do his will, he's a disobedient slave. He is rebellious. He does not claim and he does not manifest that he obeys his master. Well, it's the same with us. If he is our Lord and master, then we should do what he says. We should obey his holy will in all things. Whatever he speaks on, we should obey and we should walk 
in the same way that he walked. So this is what we must do. We must do the will of Christ. Now, again, there are many false churches, many false Christians who consistently invoke the name of the Lord, right? The name of the Lord. For example, one that is obvious to many would be the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is a false church, and yet, if you go to a service there, they will invoke the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus Christ, the name of God, the name of the Lord. They will pronounce blessings in the name of the Lord. They do that throughout the whole service. When they baptize someone, they do it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? When they give communion, they say these kinds of words. They're not calling upon the name of Allah. They're not calling upon the millions of false gods of Hinduism. They're not calling upon the pagan gods of the Greeks or Romans. They're calling upon the God of the Bible, right? They're saying the right words, saying the right names, but are they doing it truly and legitimately? And the answer is no, they're not. They're not doing it in the right way. They make the sign of the cross. They do their confession. Right, the priest absolves their sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Right, so they're saying all of these things in the name of Christ, but they're not doing it in truth and honesty, they're not doing it according to the Word of God. So, there is one clear example in our own day, and this would be true of anyone who is calling upon the name of the Lord but not doing so in a legitimate, in a legitimate way. Verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Here, many, right, many, not a few, not one or two here or there, but he says many will say on that day. What day is the day that they say this on? The day of judgment. The day when they stand before Christ and Jesus is assigning them with the goats, right? With those who are accursed who will enter into the fires of hell, they're going to protest and say, no, Lord, you're mistaken. Lord, Lord, what are you doing here? Don't you know? Don't you remember? We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed many miracles. We did that in your name. So why are you assigning us with the goats, with those who are outside and not with the righteous, right? Not with your sheep, not with your children. So here we have another thing, right? A, a simple profession without obedience is not enough. And here, religious experiences without obedience is not sufficient. It is not good enough. Yet what do many people do? They cling to experiences. Some religious experience that they had in the past, in their childhood, when they were a young adult, they were at the church, they started crying, they had their emotions all worked up, they had all these feelings, and they cling to this experience that they had, even though their life, what is consistently true of their life, testifies to the exact opposite reality. Yet, they are 100% convinced that they are Christians, and that if they die, they're going to go to heaven, because they had an experience when they were a child or when they were a teenager or when they were a, a, an adult, even though that experience has not borne out in any good fruit or any change in the way that they live. They're clinging to these types of things. Isn't this what they're doing here, right? We prophesied in your name, right? We cast out demons in your name. We did many miracles in your name, but this isn't enough. Let's see a few examples of people who did these types of things, and we know that they were not of God. First, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Let's start reading in verse 1. It says, Jesus summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the name of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. So there, when Jesus gave them power, authority over unclean spirits, 
to heal disease and sickness, who also received that authority? Judas. Judas Iscariot. Right. And there's no evidence that when they went out, 11 of them were able to do this and he wasn't. But rather, the assumption is that they all went out and they all were doing these things because they all come back rejoicing that even the demons are subject to them in the name of Christ. So did Judas Iscariot cast out demons? Yes. Did he heal people? Yes. Did he go and preach to people? Yes. He did all of those things, but only temporarily, right? Only temporarily. Ultimately, what did he do? He was a deceiver and a betrayer. And even when he was with them, he was a thief. He was a thief because he was pilfering from the money back. So this is the kind of man that Judas Iscariot was. So Judas will be one protesting on that day. Lord, didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I preach in your name? Didn't I heal people in your name? And yet Jesus will say to him, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. How about another example? Numbers 23. Numbers 23. And we won't read all of it, but we'll just read a, a few verses here. The first one, Numbers 23, 19. Now, is this a true statement or a false statement? 23.19, one of the best verses in the Bible on the character and nature of God. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said it, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Is that a true or false statement? 100% true. Yet, whose mouth did it come from? Balaam. And was Balaam a true or a false prophet? We know Balaam was a false prophet. We know that because... When Joshua leads them into, or when they go to battle against them, they put him to death, right? They execute him. And then he's also mentioned in Jude and other passages as an example of a false prophet. He was a false prophet, yet this false prophet makes a true statement concerning the character and nature of God. And he did the will of God many times in this uh, encounter with Israel because God forced him to do so. How about also? Numbers 24 and verse 2. It says, And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. The Spirit of God came upon him. And then he makes another prophecy. So is Balaam a believer or an unbeliever? He's clearly an unbeliever, yet he prophesied true words by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God forced him, caused him, even contrary to his will, yeah. to prophesy what was true and right. So isn't Balaam an example of someone who could protest and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? I prophesied in your name. The Spirit of God came upon me. I said this and that, and I said what was true and right. Why are you putting me into outer darkness? How about one more example? 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. King Saul. Is King Saul a believer or unbeliever? Clearly an unbeliever. But notice 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 9. 1 Samuel 10, 9. says, Then it happened when he turned his back to leave, Samuel, God changed his heart. And all those signs came, up, uh, came about on that day. And when they came to the hill country there, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. And it came about, when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? So Saul, King Saul, prophesied. He prophesied, and the people were even saying, What's going on? Is Saul also now counted among the prophets? So these three examples, Judas, Balaam, Saul, are all examples of unbelievers who prophesied, who cast out demons, who did miracles, all in the name of Christ. And yet, they are clear examples of unbelievers. This is what Jesus is talking about here. And there will be many on that day 
who preached sermons in the name of Christ, who went to the mission field in the name of Christ, who did many things in the name of Christ. But what is the evidence that they're not true disciples? Well, notice what he says in verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Here's the evidence. This is what we have to look to. Not experiences, not whether or not we've been through this or that ritual, not mere words and professions and the things that people say, but the true evidence of whether or not someone is a true disciple of Christ, a true slave of Christ, is obedience to Christ. If we practice lawlessness, then we are not true disciples of Christ. Isn't that what Jesus says? That's why he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And he says, I never knew you. Right. Never knew you. Right? Not at any time in their Christian experience did he ever know them or did they ever know Christ. And the evidence is that they practice lawlessness. Right. Now again, he's not saying that we have to be perfect. We know that that's not true. But he's talking about practicing sin practicing lawlessness. What was true of their life before their so-called conversion is lawlessness. And what was true of their life after their so-called conversion was more lawlessness. There's no change of life. That's not the way it is with a true believer. Right. Before our conversion, lawlessness. But after our conversion, we're not lawless in that way anymore. We don't practice lawlessness. Yes, we may have failures here and there, but what is true of our life from our conversion onward is that we want to obey God. We want to please God. We want to do His will. And in some measure, we do obey Him. We do keep the commandments of God. But this is not what is true of them. And he says, I never knew you. So it's not that he knew them and then they lost their salvation. They never had it to begin with, right? They never had it. Everything from start to finish was a farce. It was a phony he never knew them because if he truly knew them, then they would never be lost. They would never fall away. But that they fall away, that they continued in lawlessness, that they are assigned with the dogs and the sorcerers and the wicked on the day of judgment is evidence that Jesus never knew them at any point in their life, either before or after their so-called conversion. This is the same as 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, in verse 19. 1 John 2, 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Here, these people going out from us, right, from the church, abandoning the church, right, leaving uh, the faith, prove that they were not really of us, right? They were never of us. They pretended to be of us for a moment, but that they went out proves that they never were really of us, because if they were of us, what would have happened? They would have stayed. They would have remained with us but they went out so that it would be clear and evident that they were not really of us. This is what Jesus means here when he says, I never knew you, right? Never knew you from the beginning or to the end. And they are those who practice lawlessness. So these are professors, professors of religion, right? They have religious associations, religious experiences. They go through rituals. They do these types of things. But this is not sufficient proof of salvation. What proves true salvation is keeping the commandments of God, living a godly life, right? Desiring and pursuing the things of God. This is what we need to look at when we are examining our life, which we're told to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see whether or not we are in the faith. We need to be doing this. And what we need to look for are not experiences from the past, Right? Not rituals, not professions, not this or that, 
but we need first and foremost, primarily, to look at our life. Are we living a godly life? And then if that is true, then these other things can be a benefit to us, right? I'm not discounting that whatever experiences that we have or rituals that we've gone through, right? Is it good for a person to be baptized? Yes, but only if it's true. But if it is true, then it's a good experience. It's something that confirms and adds greater confirmation to our testimony and to our faith. Is it good to profess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord? Of course it is. And if we are living an obedient life and then also professing that Jesus is Lord, that's good evidence, right? That's good. It's when there is disobedience and lawlessness, but then these things are used to cover up the reality. That's hypocrisy. And that's what we should avoid. What we need to be looking for is the living of a godly and a righteous life. This is as it says in Galatians Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, 15. It says, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. There, circumcision doesn't matter, nor uncircumcision. What really matters is new creation, right. a new heart. Are you a new creation in Christ Jesus? And then an accompanying passage with this, as a good cross-reference, is 1 Corinthians seven nineteen. First Corinthians seven nineteen. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God. So which one is it? What matters? The new creation or keeping the commandments of God? Well, they're one and the same, right? That's what he's saying. The one he's saying, he's talking about the root, right? What is the root? The new creation. The other one, he's bringing forward the fruit. What is the fruit of the new creation? Right. Keeping the commandments of God. But they always go together. It's impossible that someone would be a new creation and not keep the commandments of God. Right. And it's impossible for someone to truly keep the commandments of God and for him not to be a new creation. Right? One is emphasizing the one aspect. The other is emphasizing the other aspect. And when we take them together, you have the whole. You have the whole. That's what matters is keeping the commandments of God. So... Um, all of these things then that we've mentioned in terms of experiences, associations, professions, rituals, right? All of these things can have a place in the Christian life, but not without godliness. Godliness. We have to live a godly life. This is what we need to be looking for to determine whether or not we are in the faith and not use these things unjustly and wickedly in order to pacify our conscience and our lack of godliness and to assure ourselves that everything is all right and we're going to make it to heaven even though there's no evidence of the new creation. Okay, verse 24. Verse 24 says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house. Yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. There, now he's going to apply this and then use this illustration to teach and to show, to give a picture of what it is that he's talking about. Whoever hears these words of mine and acts on them, okay, is it good to hear the word of Christ? Of course it is. But were there not many people who heard the word of Christ when he was on the earth during his public ministry? Many, many, many people heard the words of Christ. He taught in their streets. He preached in their synagogues. They listened to him. They heard his words. But merely hearing the word is not sufficient. We must hear the word and do it. Or as he says here, you must act upon it. You have to hear it. What are the implications? What is the obedience? What does this require of me? And then not merely hear it, but you have to act upon it. You have to do something about it. Where, right? If it's some sin, 
that's being preached against and you're committing this sin, you have to repent of it. If it's calling for you to have faith in some doctrine, belief in some doctrine, then you must believe it. If it requires some act of obedience, then you must act upon it and go and do what it is that Jesus is commanding you to do. And those who hear the word and act upon them are like a wise man. Do we want to be a wise man or a fool? Well, I hope we want to be wise, right? No one wants to be a fool. And in the Bible, the term fool is synonymous for wicked, right? Fool is not just someone who's ditzy, you know, uh, brain dead and wanders around and doesn't know what they're doing all the time. Yeah, in, in a cute and an innocent little way. A fool in the Bible is a pernicious, wicked person who rejects God's wisdom. So we don't want to be a fool. A wise man is a believer, a child of God, a righteous man. That's who we want to be. We want to be a wise man. Well, if we hear the word and act upon it, then we're like a wise man who built his house on a rock, right? We all know that if you're building a house, you have to have a good foundation. If the foundation is not steady, if it's not solid and secure, then the house is going to be vulnerable. It's going to be in a precarious situation whenever the storms come and the house is going to fall down. And then when that happens, everyone's gonna see it and they're gonna laugh at you. They're gonna mock you and say, look at this fool. He put all of that work, all of that effort into building this house, but he forgot, neglected the most important part. He didn't build it upon something secure, upon a rock, and then it's fallen down and all of that work was for nothing. If we build our house upon the rock, which is faith, belief in the word of Christ, right? Not mere uh, superficial faith, but true faith. Faith that is accompanied with obedience, with acting upon the word of Christ, then we are like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Then the rain comes and the floods come and the winds blow and they slam against that house, but the house doesn't fall. It remains standing upright because it has been founded on the rock. The trials, the tribulations, the persecutions, the sufferings that we endure in this life, someone with true faith who has built his life, his house, upon Jesus Christ with true faith in the word of Christ, when all of those things assault him in this life, his faith, it may be shaken, but it will not fail. It will not fail. His house will not come toppling down, but it will be secure and it will be able to endure these trials and tribulations that we must enter through in order to enter the kingdom of God. And then ultimately on the day of judgment, when we go through the fire, the storm of judgment, our house will remain standing and it will not suffer harm. James chapter 1. James 1. And verse 19. James 1, 19. says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But he who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So here he exhorts us to prove ourselves doers of the word, right? Doers. Isn't the Bible calling us to obedience? No doubt. Isn't it calling us to action, to many areas where we need to conform our life to the will of God, to the life of Christ? This is what the Bible is doing from cover to cover. It's calling us to act, to do, right? To obey, to conform our life to the will of Christ. Well, when we come to the Bible and we hear the word of Christ, 
whether that's in our own private reading of the Bible, which we should be doing, whether that's in Bible study like tonight or the public teaching when we get together on Sundays, or if we're meeting with a brother or a sister and we're talking to them about the things of God, whenever we're coming into contact with the Word of God, we are hearing the Word of God, right? This is what we are, we're being exposed to the truth, to the righteousness found in the Bible. Well, when that happens, we must prove ourselves to be doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. A hearer is someone who goes to church. There are many people like this. Yeah. They may not go every week, but they'll go whenever they can or whenever they feel like it. And they think, as long as I go, everything's going to be all right. And whether they listen or don't listen, it doesn't matter. Whether the pastor gets up and preaches a good sermon or a bad sermon, it doesn't matter. All that matters is that I'm there and I heard something, but it doesn't change or impact the way that they live. Right. This is not the way that we should approach the Word of God. Whether, again, that's our personal reading or that's the public teaching of the Bible. We should come excitedly, expectantly, ready to hear the Word of God and eager to obey it. And if we are hearing the Word and we see that there's some area in our life that is lacking, then what do we need to do? We need to change, right? We need to do it. And how quickly do we need to do it? Immediately, right? Immediately we need to go and do the Word of God. So don't be a hearer who deludes himself. Then he uses an example. Anyone who hears and doesn't do it is like a man who looks at himself in the mirror. He looks at himself and he goes away and immediately he's forgotten what kind of person he was. He looks at himself. He's got mud all over his face. He's got crud all over him. And then he walks away from the mirror and he forgets it. And he walks out into the town and everyone's laughing at him because he's got dirt and mud and crud all over his face. Or he has some wound on him and he sees it. And then he walks out and forgets about it. And he doesn't go and do something and it gets infected. And then he dies because of it. Right? Wouldn't we say that's a foolish person? You just looked at yourself, man, in the mirror. Why didn't you go clean your face off? Why didn't you go to the hospital and get the attention that you needed to deal with your wound? How could you forget what you look like so quickly? Well, this is what the Word of God is. It's like a mirror looking into our soul, into our spirit, showing us the will of God and showing us those areas where we need to conform our life to the will of Christ. And when we hear that, we have to act upon it. We can't brush it off, forget about it, say, you know what, it's not a big deal. I'll just keep doing what I've always done, right? Because I don't want to change. No, we can't be like that. We must be doers of the word. Okay, one other passage, uh, 2 Corinthians 4. I think this will give us some insight into the rains and the wind and the storm that comes. And this is what happened to the apostle. And then he, he proved himself to be a wise man who had built his house upon the rock. Second Corinthians four, verse seven it says that we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. There, when he says we are afflicted, crushed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, right? this is what's happening to him in terms of sufferings, persecutions, hardships. Right? What's happening to him and what he's speaking of literally here is what Jesus is speaking of metaphorically in this example of the rain coming and landing upon the house. Right. And the apostle's experience was, yes, he was going through severe afflictions, but these things were not going to overcome him. He was enduring them, he was surviving them, because he was a man who had true faith, built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. 26 and 27. 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Here, this entire passage from 13 onward, you know, we often speak of the contrastive method of teaching. You have to teach by way of contrast, good and evil, the wise man and the foolish man. Right? This is the way that the Bible teaches. Isn't that what Jesus is doing here? Good tree, bad tree, right? Broadway, narrow way. A fool and a wise man. Right? So we can't say, well, why can't Jesus be positive? Why can't he just talk about the wise man? Why does he have to speak about the foolish man? Well, why does he have to speak about the fool? Because there's a lot of fools out there, right? And we don't want to be a foolish person. So he's having to describe both sides, right? The good side and the bad side, so that we'll see what is good and go in that way, and we'll avoid what is bad and what is evil. So we have to teach in this way. We have to contrast righteousness and wickedness, right? Faith and unbelief, good and evil, right? This is the way the Bible teaches, and this is how Jesus teaches. So this is the way that we have to do as well. Here, the next one is the foolish man. The one who hears the words and does not act upon them, right? The one who is a mere hearer of the word and not a doer, as James spoke of in James chapter 1. He is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now, we know that sand, in terms of building and a foundation for your house, is no good, right? It's no good because when the water comes, when the storm comes, there's, no, there's nothing solid there. And what's going to happen to the house? It's going to come falling and crashing down. And that's exactly what happened. The same things are experienced by the one with true faith and the one with false faith. The rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew, slammed against the house, and then it fell. It fell, it faltered, it was great in its fall, it was utterly destroyed. Now, when this happens, it proves that this is a not a true believer, right. that he never knew Christ, and Christ never knew him. So momentarily, right, for a moment, there's no distinction between, at least outwardly, between these two builders, right? The wise man and the foolish man. They both erect and build houses. And everyone walks by and they both see houses that are standing. Then what is it that reveals the true nature of the house? It's the persecutions. It's the sufferings. It's the afflictions. It's the hardships. Right. Isn't that what the Bible <laughs> teaches us? This is why we must go through tribulations, through testings, to prove, to determine whether or not we are genuine and sincere or whether or not we are false. This is the same as, again, like 1 Corinthians 11. There must be factions among you. There must be factions and divisions among you so that those who are genuine may be proven. This is why we have to experience these things in the Christian life. Hardships, sufferings, afflictions, tribulations, in order to test our faith, to determine whether or not it is good and genuine or whether or not it is false. And if it is true faith, what will that testing do to it? It will strengthen it. It will refine it so that our faith comes out in a better way, right? So that we are purified in this way. But if a person has false faith, then they fall away during these times and they wash up and they do not continue with the Lord. This is like the seed that is sown among the rocky ground. When the persecutions come, on account of the word, they fall away because they never had true faith. It never took true root in that person. It was only superficial. So can we determine whether someone is a fool according to this passage? Of course, of course we can. Right? What do they do when sufferings and persecutions and hardships come on account of the word? Do they fall away? Do they continue with us? Do they walk away? Do they give up? Well, this is the evidence as to whether or not they are wise or whether or not they are a foolish person. Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah 17. And verse 5. 
Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8. It says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert, and he will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose trust is the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream. And he will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. And it will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Here, isn't Jeremiah teaching the exact same thing as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Mm -hmm. He's teaching the contrast between the true and the false, right? Between the wise and the fool. Between the one who trusts in the Lord and the one who trusts in man. The one who trusts in man is like a bush in the desert, in a salty desert, in a dry, barren wasteland. It's not going to produce anything good at all. It's of no value at all except to be burned up. But the one who trusts in the Lord is like a tree planted by the water. He's go it's going to bear fruit, and even in the time of drought, it does not fear. It will still be green, and it will not cease to yield fruit, even during the times of suffering and hardship. Okay, 28 to 29. It says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Here, this is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of, if not the longest of Jesus' sermons, recorded sermons right, in, in the Bible. Now, we know that even the Sermon on the Mount is a summary, right? It's a summary of what he taught, right? It's not the full uh, content of everything that he said. Because if we just read the Sermon on the Mount, it would take us maybe 15 or 20 minutes to read it. And we know that Jesus would have taught for many, many hours, right? That this would have been a very long, thorough discourse of him explaining these things. So these sermons are summaries of what Jesus taught, and here it gives us a summary of the reaction of the crowds whenever they heard the teaching of Jesus, right? When he had finished these words, this sermon, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed at what he taught. Now, on the one hand, we might say that this is good, right? It's good to be amazed at the teaching because this is true teaching, and they are recognizing a distinction between the way Jesus teaches and the way that their scribes teach. So that is good that they see the distinction. However, we know that even many of these people will not be doers of the word. That they are like those who want to come and be entertained by the prophet, who want to hear him speak these words in this eloquent way, and they're amazed at it for a moment, but then eventually they'll walk away because they'll realize that he really believes these things. And he really expects me to deny myself, take up my cross daily and follow him. And I didn't sign up for that. So on the one hand, it's good that they are amazed at his teaching and that they see a distinction. But then that is in itself not enough if they do not believe it and if they do not obey it. So they are amazed at his words. And their amazement is because he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. He's proclaiming the word of God with authority, right. with authority. Now, this is what people hate. They do not want authoritative preaching. They want a smooth talker. They want, actually, today people really like effeminate pastors, a man who acts like a woman. And gets up there and talks with a lisp, you know, or, uh, you know, I'm talking about that kind of person. Or is real effeminate, soft-spoken, and is having, a, it's like a therapy session. This is what they want, you know, or a counseling session with their therapist. The therapist isn't going to yell and scream at you. Not that we're yelling and screaming all the time. But uh, anyway, they don't want someone with authority. But that's not the way that Jesus taught. Jesus spoke to them with authority. He did not say, this is my opinion. He didn't say, okay, well, there's four or five different ways of looking at this. There's this interpretation and this interpretation and this interpretation. And you just look at it and pick which one you like best. And it really doesn't matter because we can all just get along anyway. That's not the way that he taught. 
He taught in the same way that the prophets taught. And the reason he taught like the prophets is because he was the one who inspired the prophets to teach the way that they taught. And what did the prophet say? Thus says the Lord. This is not an opinion. This is not a suggestion. I'm not giving you a recommendation. I'm telling you this is the word of God. You must believe these things. You must obey these things. And it is an issue of life and death. The scribes, they're the ones who get up and they'll say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this. And then Rabbi so-and-so says this. And then this other rabbi, he says this. And then they talk in circles, all these different ways. And they're floating around in the clouds talking about this and that. And it has no bearing on anything at all. It's not a benefit to the people. Many times they want to speak in ways that wow the people, that impress the people with their intellectualism, with their scholarship, with all the things that they know. But it doesn't benefit the people in terms of faith and in terms of righteousness and in knowing the will of God. But what should be the goal of our teaching? To know the will of God. To know what does the Bible actually say. This is what you should demand from your teachers. Not opinions, not preferences, not those types of things, but I want to know what does the Bible actually say about this topic so that I can believe what the Bible says and so that I can obey what the Bible says. That's the attitude that we should have when we approach the Bible. And when we have authoritative teaching, we should not resist that, but rather we should rejoice in having that type of teaching because that's the way that Jesus taught. He taught with authority, not like the scribes, right? In the scribes, he's generalizing, describing, this is the teaching class, right? During this time. So the majority of the teachers during the time of Christ were not teaching like him. And it was an obvious distinction, a contrast between Jesus and the teachers of the day. They were not teaching the right way, but Jesus is. And that's what we should desire and what we should want and what we should strive to do. And that's what we try to do to the best of our ability. Okay, so we did it. Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. I don't know how long it took, but it took some time. And, uh, but we finished through it, and we'll pick up next week in chapter 8, uh, moving on through the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, well, we have a few minutes. So are there any questions or comments uh, that anyone has tonight on this last portion of the Sermon on the Mount?